Greg, are you ready? Yeah. This is episode one, man. This is the big time. Don't get uh, nervous on me, Greg. I, I'm sitting here. I got the jitters. It's All like right. my first intubation ever. <laughs> Welcome to RT, RT Audio episode one. See, I'm, I'm getting nervous. I almost said the name wrong in the podcast. It's RT Audio. I know. I stumbled. You're good. You're good. <laughs> Take a nice big deep breath in. We're respiratory therapists. Breathing's our thing. That's right. All right, what we thought would be interesting for this first episode was to, first of all, introduce ourselves, give you guys a a little bit of a background on who we are, maybe how we got to where we are today. And I thought it might be an interesting concept to put ourselves on the hot seats for the first episode. I can interview you and ask some some brain-busting questions, and you can interview me. What do you think? Uh, You think that's a good place to start? Give our listeners a bit bit better idea of who we are and kind of where we come from and uh, kind of expose ourselves a little bit, which is probably something we're both not very comfortable doing, but here's the big leap. All right, man. So before we get started, um, we're going to start off playing each episode with a sound. And uh, first question to you guys is, what's that first sound that you guys are hearing at the start of this podcast? Uh-huh. So there was already one sound. Uh, if you listen to our trailer, the first sound that you heard was an alarm of a ventilator. Uh, Greg, can you name that ventilator? Puritan Bennett 980, 760? Uh-huh. Which one? Uh-huh. It's 840. Ah, there it is, Greg. Yeah, that was the PB840. Uh, that's been a workhorse for a lot of years, that ventilator, especially in the area that we were practicing in. Eh? Yeah, when we came in as students, uh, that was the main ventilator that we used all the time in our student rotations. And well, the 7200 was still kind of going. The 840 yeah. was actually a new kid on the block, I think, when we started. Yeah. But uh, uh, we won't tell people. Well, maybe we will tell people since we're exposing ourselves how long ago that was. But <laughs> Greg, so... Who wants to go first? You want me to tell the world about Dave Wall, or do you want to introduce the international man of mystery known as Greg Dondi? Why don't you start with the questions, and I'll start with the answers. All right, so Greg, what did you do before you got into respiratory therapy? Before I got into respiratory therapy, I I went from high school, went into pre-health here at Fanshawe College, and I had my heart set on becoming a paramedic. That was my number one goal. And um, as I was going through pre-health, it was my goal, that was my goal. And then at some point I found that I, I wouldn't really qualify for a F driver's license to become a paramedic. And Why, Why is that, Greg? Because uh, I'm blind in one eye and so wouldn't have that peripheral vision to be able to actually uh, drive an ambulance. And my heart just sank. And I was like, okay, what do I do now? Do I go into nursing? Do I go into something else? Can can Um, we take a pause here for a second? Just so the listeners know, I've actually driven in a car with Greg, and I think everybody in the community is grateful that he's not driving an ambulance right now. Thanks, Dave. (laughs) (laughs) Continue. Um, And so I just said, I kind of like learning about the respiratory and cardiovascular system and anatomy and physiology. Let's go into that. Um, I entered into the program not knowing what a respiratory therapist was, what they did, um, anything about the job, and from day one I just fell in love with it and I just kind of, dumb luck, just ended in the right career. Excellent, cool. did you have any favorite classmates in your class? Uh, you know what? Uh, Dave Wall <laughs> used to actually sit behind me in class. And um, one of the, my pet peeves with Dave, and still bothers me today sometimes <laughs> when I'm sitting next to him in the office, is he has this kind of thing where his leg just goes up and down, up and down, up and down. And I'm pretty sure in class at one point I reached back, put my hand on his knee, and I said, stop. That's a true story. That happened, yeah. <laughs> um, I, might, I might have the restless leg syndrome. I yeah. don't know. 
so okay. Dave and I graduated together in uh, 2006. Uh, we were in the same graduating class that year, and uh, we've been good friends ever since, and I've been lucky enough to work with you kind of throughout my entire career. That's right, yeah. I don't know if luck is uh, the right word for that, but uh, <laughs> we're here anyways. Yep. Um, question for you. You were a very good student, if I recall. You were that guy that everybody in the class would go to for help if they didn't understand some content or, you know, there was something confusing. What was it? How, how did you have such a grasp of the content so early on? What would you tell a, an early um, RT student in their, their studies right now to, to be like that? So if you guys can't kind of figure out what Dave's trying to get at while he's beating around the bush, he's basically saying, uh, I'm a big geek, which is very, very true. Um, you know what? I think what made it so easy is I actually really enjoyed learning about this content and really enjoyed learning this material. Um, and I found that so much more valuable and beneficial than learning about something that I had no interest in. Um, so that was the first thing is that the love for the material made me want to actually learn it and want to understand it. Um, then I think it really, everyone learns differently. Um, but I think pre-reading was a huge help for me. You know, picking, you know, the lecture and reading through it before the class or reading, you know, a chapter in the textbook before the class. It meant when the teacher was standing up there talking and presenting to us, I actually had a bit of a grasp of the concept. And so it made it a lot easier to actually understand it during that time. And so that little bit of work kind of before classes and before labs really went a long way in terms of my understanding. Um, the other thing that really used to work well, and we used to do a lot of it together, was we would get to the point where a couple of days before an exam, we would get together and we would just quiz each other, just kind of going back and forth. And it really kind of, you know, Dave would ask a question a specific way that I maybe not had thought about it before. I remember um, those sessions. They were super helpful. And so just us kind of firing questions back and forth and kind of quizzing each other and helping each other understand concepts was, was huge in terms of challenging my, my knowledge on certain content. Uh, kind of before exams. So, uh, the only other piece of advice I can really give you guys is um, there's a lot coming at you, but it's stuff that you need to know for a lot of it for the rest of your your life, the rest of your career. And so, try and not study just for one specific exam, and you know, try and study to actually understand the material because it all builds and all kind of works together moving forward. So after graduation, uh, you were, if I recall, you were always really interested in the neonatal world. Yeah. Uh, if I remember correctly, and you can tell me if this is right or wrong, or maybe I just dreamt this, did you not have a job at one of the hospitals that had uh, the NICU and you were working in like a cleaning service or laundry or... No. You were doing something in there trying to get your, your foot in the door. I, you know what? I, I wanted a job like that, but it never actually happened. No. Um, when I went through the RT program, I actually worked as at East Park. Um, oh, I remember that. We used to ride the go-karts. And so I used to work there as a rock climbing instructor, but I never ended up working in a hospital before we kind of graduated. So... So you, you actually got uh, a job right out of school, right? Uh, we have both got a job at the same hospital, at Victoria Hospital. Um, and quite early in your career, you made that transition over into the neonatal world. Yeah, so uh, I was very fortunate when I graduated. I got a casual position working at uh, Victoria Hospital, which was mostly adults. And then you do the occasional pediatric floors. Um, and then at the same time, I also got a position working in the neonatal intensive care unit, uh, which actually back then used to be held at uh, St. Joe's Hospital here in London. Um, and for whatever reason, I was just always drawn to baby. Something about yeah, it just what, kind what of... What is it? What is it about the little ones that... 
you know what? I, I love how fragile they are, but I also love how quickly they bounce back. Um, and to me, in my mind, they have these own little personalities. And, you know, it's, it's not big personalities like an adult or a child has, but they have these little personalities in the way they look at you and the way they smile and the way they move and the way they frown. Um, and so for me, my comfort area, my, you know, the place where my heart's happy has always been working with uh, premature babies and newborn babies, so... Well, we need we need more people like that. That's not for everybody. So after your casual position, you said you were lucky enough to get a job at the in the NICU at St. Joe's. Um, you spent some uh, a good portion of your career on the transport team as well, yeah, though, so, which is a pretty advanced role. Can you so tell us a little I, bit about that. I worked on the neonatal pediatric transport team. So we did from newborn babies all the way up to eighteen years old, or you know, eighteen minus a day. Um, and so with that, we would travel uh, to areas where there was a sick newborn or sick pediatric patient who didn't have the ability to provide the care that they needed. And so traveling either by ambulance, by plane, by helicopter, just depending on how far you're going. Uh, sometimes it was going by taxi. Sometimes it was even going in the back of a police car to try and get somewhere to help a uh, child in need. Um, and kind of the main area we went was anywhere from Windsor all the way up to Owen Sound, kind of to Kitchen. And then would even do far north, like Marathon, Thunder Bay, Sault Ste. Marie, um, you know, kind of even getting close over to the, you know, the border in Winnipeg. Um, and, I, you know, what I love transport. It was, it was a role where uh, you got to use a lot of your skills as an RT. Um, you got to ha- make a lot of decisions, kind of working together with the nurse. So the transport team was a nurse respiratory therapist transport team. And then we'd have a doctor who would oversee us, and uh, they would often be back in London, and we'd be able to call them up, um, you know, tell them what's going on with the patient, uh, give suggestions of how to manage this patient, kind of receive orders from them. Um, so I really enjoyed that kind of critical thinking where you're dealing with sometimes some of the sickest patients and having to, uh, you know, think what's going on right now, but then also plan ahead for where this patient might be going in their, you know, severity of their disease and trying to preempt that or stop some of their uh, decline from actually happening. And the other aspect of that job that I really enjoyed was uh, we were kind of cross-trained to become a nurse. So understanding how nurses think, understanding how, you know, the different, you know, parts of the body, the different body systems that nurses will assess, Um, and then also, you know, IVs, drawing up medications, infusing medications. So I really did enjoy that kind of cross-training because I found it it meant I didn't look at my patient as a respiratory therapist from, you know, head down to diaphragm, but I actually looked at all my patients' body systems and really found that kind of gave me just a different perspective in their overall care. Very cool. So one last question, Greg, because uh, it kind of culminates right now is uh, the last couple of years you've been a full-time faculty in the RT program, and you've kind of come full circle from that uh, geeky little RT student to now being and standing in the front of the class teaching those students to, to emulate you, right? So yeah. how did that all come to be? Yeah, so um, same thing with babies. I always really was passionate with teaching, and I enjoyed teaching. And so kind of shortly after we graduated, within the next year or so, I started teaching here part-time at Fanshawe Lab. And just kind of over the, you know, kind of next couple of years after that, did a little bit more each year. I eventually got in where I was teaching in the classroom, um, teaching in lab a lot more. And I just really enjoy uh, working with the students. I really enjoy the, you know, the energy, the enthusiasm they bring uh, to the profession and to their learning. Um, and so two or three years ago, I guess now, I became a full-time faculty member here at Fanshawe. 
students are lucky to have you, buddy. Thanks. All right, that's, do uh, you feel exposed? Yeah, yeah. a little bit. <laughs> that's all the questions I have for you right now. Perfect. Um, I'll put myself in the hot seat. So the nice thing is now I can ask Dave even harder questions because <laughs> I know he can't come back to me. So um, let's just kind of start off, Dave, with uh, yourself a little bit before you got into the respiratory therapy program, what you did before that. Uh, I was actually a student at the University of Guelph. I have a degree in uh, general sciences. I spent a lot of time studying chemistry and physics at Guelph. Um, my original plan, I think, was to go into something in the pharmaceutical realm, uh, pharmacy being one of them, until probably about my third year at Guelph, I realized I, I missed that human connection. I was spending a lot of time at the periodic table of elements and you know, titrating and pipetting to endpoints in the lab. And it was interesting, but I, there was always something missing. So I remember going to see my sister one uh, weekend who, at that time, she was a nuke med in Toronto, nuke med tech. And uh, her roommate was actually an RT. And apparently I was, uh, I was complaining a little too much for their liking. And they just said, why don't you suck it up and look at something different? And uh, talked all about the different roles of a respiratory therapist. And I was kind of intrigued. So uh, I actually applied. I applied to all the schools in Ontario. Um, I got in. I attended Fanshawe College the first day. And I really didn't have a strong understanding of what I was getting into. I had a, a concept, an idea. I did some research. But by no means was I you know, proficient at what the role was going to be at the end of the day. And uh, I can honestly say it was... It was one of the best decisions I've ever made to, to come to attend the college program at Fanshawe, and I've never regretted it or looked back since. Great. So um, the next kind of question I have is, um, like we've said, you know, we graduated together. We worked at London Health Sciences Centre together, but uh, you ended up getting a job working at a community hospital mm -hmm. in Stratford. Yep. Can you tell us a little bit more about kind of what the role is like in a community hospital, maybe compared to a larger centre? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I loved it. Uh, first of all, I love the balance between working at a, like a trauma centre like LHSC and then a community centre like Stratford. It kind of in all honesty, it was a bit of the best of both worlds for me. Um, the trauma center, you could see see everything would come in the door. Um, you learn so much so quickly. Uh, your experience goes, you know, from A to Z all the way in the one shift. Um, but it's also a learning center, a teaching center. So there's all, every other aspect of healthcare has uh, partnerships in there and nursing students, medical students, residents, physio students, pharmacy students, you name it. Everybody's learning, which is such a great environment for, for people to be involved with. Um, what I found different in Stratford in the community setting was you may not have the same acuity and same you know adrenaline rush every shift, but what was happening, you were integra integrated into the care uh, very closely with the team. Um, so for an example, like a cardiac arrest at Stratford might be a physician, an RT, and a nurse. And a cardiac arrest at LHSC might be a physician, two RTs, three nurses, five residents, two med students, nursing students, RT students, pharmacy students. Like there's, there's a wealth of different experiences there. Um, but one thing I really valued was the ability to get my hands on and skill level to a point where I started to feel comfortable. 
um, things like intubations, arterial blood gases, arterial lines, the decision making and the prioritization when you don't have you know a, a department of 30 other people to rely on and to ask for help. If it's, you're the only RT in the hospital, it's it's something that you have to start making a big effort to prioritize your care and where it's gonna. Uh, what's what's the most important thing to do at this particular point, and. Personally, I think it made me a better respiratory therapist because it exposed me to different things in the profession as well. Um, at, at LHSC, I didn't participate in any of the stress testing or outpatient labs or pulmonary function testing. Um, I, that was an expected role at Stratford in the community center. So there was different parts of the portfolio that I enjoyed and both jobs, I think, gave me a little bit more of a passion to be um, an RT. Nice. Um so at uh, some point you kind of transitioned from the clinical role and got a lot more into the teaching. Can you kind of tell us how that transition kind of occurred? Yeah, that was actually um, quite early on. I, I was asked to teach in the practical lab just as a part-time basis. And I, I did that for a couple of years, um, just kind of like self-schedule, you know, come in once or twice a month. Um, and I enjoyed it. I loved it. And it was something that... Uh, I definitely thought this was a good uh, a place to continue and move my career towards, but I really didn't think that was realistic. I had a good thing going. I was working at two hospitals. I had a part-time job at the lab. And then one day, uh, I was approached in the back of the room saying, what are you doing on Monday? Uh, and I said, I'm working Sunday night, but I think Mondays are free. Do you need some help in the lab? And the current coordinator of the RT program at that time said, no, one of our faculty is off sick. Would you consider teaching a class? And honest to God, Greg, my brain said, Dave, say no. You've got a good thing going. You've got two jobs, three jobs. you got a, you know, at that time a fiance. Just say no. Everything's going well. My mouth, for whatever reason, my mouth opened up and said, sure, I'd love to. And <laughs> from that day forward, I uh, found myself kind of immersed in the uh, I guess, faculty role of things. So I'd never taught a class before. And this particular class was anatomy and physiology, which as you've, you've listened to the first part of this, my background is more in the physical sciences, chemistry, physics, things like that. I mean, I, I took anatomy and physiology as an RT student, but uh, I wouldn't say it was my, my forte, my strength. Um, but that first class was awful. <laughs> <laughs> and ask if anyone <laughs> on this listenership was a part of that first class. I'm sorry. <laughs> I basically had the lectures provided from the, the faculty that was off sick. And I just read off the slides. And it was brutal. I felt like a dead man at the front of the class because I was done a two-hour lecture in about 30 minutes. <laughs> I just flew through them. And I realized quite quickly, if this is something that I need or I'm going to, to, to do... I need to invest time in it. And I think I went home that night and I did not stop reading anatomy and physiology textbooks until I felt at least comfortable enough to stand up and deliver that same lecture. So what I did when I came back the following week, I delivered the exact same lecture with a whole new slide deck, but it was my slide deck and I, I tried to put my spin in. I think from that point, I, I kind of fell in love with teaching because um, not only is it the teaching part of it, it's also the learning aspect. And I think that's one of the biggest things that I've come to appreciate is everything that we, we do as educators, um, there's always something for me to learn as well. And you've heard the term lifelong learning or continue learning. That's something I really value and I think is important for 
uh, respiratory therapists, educators, pretty much any professional that wants to succeed in life. Yeah, yeah definitely. I mean, I, I think uh, you've come a long way in terms of... <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, man. <laughs> um, so I got like, just a couple more questions left. So you've kind of become a bit of a, of a guru with simulation. Um, you know, we've incorporated quite a lot into our program. Um, can you give some kind of advice to our students in terms of how to, you know, be, be successful in simulation? And I'm sure this is going to become a full episode later on, but just maybe kind of a quick introduction. Yeah, so, I mean, for me, simulation was introduced um, when I was working at LHSC. Um, I was in the operating room and I was asked to participate in a simulation as a respiratory therapist for an anesthesia sim. And honestly, I didn't know really what to expect, um, but it was such a valuable experience that, well, you and I, honestly, and uh, with the help of a a faculty that's uh, retired now, um, we kind of started to try some things at the college here ourselves. And Do you think we can name that faculty? Yeah, we sure know she's she, going to be listening. I'm sure she wouldn't mind. It was yeah. Sandy Anna, Mrs. Anna. She's like, she's, she was my preceptor. Hi, she Sandy. Was, uh, <laughs> Sandy's awesome. Um, she's such a huge role in, in my career and where I am today. So, and I credit her a lot for even starting a lot of that uh, discussion and getting the simulation courses and programs up, to go, up and going where they are. Um, but in terms of being successful in a sim scenario, in a sim course, and, and anything we do, I think you have to immerse yourself 100%. That's the biggest thing I find. Uh, yeah, I know at this point simulation is it's a, a learning opportunity. And we do use simulation in our program, I th- believe, in a unique way. Because we use it in a fashion where it's preclinical. Like our students don't have real-world experience to draw from, to bring to their, their uh, practice at the bedside. Whereas uh, myself, when I was first introduced to simulation, I had a little bit of real-world experience, so I knew what I would have done in that situation. Therefore, if there was a change of practice, I could bring that back and reflect on that and make some changes. Um, we use this as a, a stepping stone almost to, to create um, something for students to, to draw from when they next see these, these scenarios. And we use pretty... Um, consistent scenarios and things that they're going to see relatively commonly in their their career. So my advice to anybody that's going through simulations in a preclinical fashion is jump in two feet. A, don't be afraid to make mistakes. We all make mistakes. It's a safe learning environment. Um, Buy into what the scenario is trying to, to deliver on because that's the best way it's going to actually make a concrete Um, like a foundation for you to build on when you are in the hospital and you can say, you know what, this feels a little bit familiar. I've done something like this and you're pulling back from some of your experiences in simulation. So the the learning in simulation is totally different than something I think from a didactic course, like a a theory course. Um, It's visceral, it's real, like you're living it so that those experiences stick. And my biggest advice to anybody that's going through simulation is to to fully immerse themselves into the scenario and then really investigate, reflect, and participate in the debriefs at the end so that they're, they're kind of um, critically appraising themselves as well as their peers to, to grow from that experience. And that's, that's what creates a successful outcome, I think, in simulation. 
career working in the operating room and you recently completed the AA program here at Fanshawe College and received the CCAA designation. Can you tell us a little bit more about that journey of working in the operating room and becoming an anesthesia assistant? Yeah, sure. You're right. I have spent the majority, I guess, of my bedside career um, in one way or the other in an operating room. Um, I would say that it originally started because of my, I'll call it my other job. Um, I, I don't know why I do that. <laughs> I guess I just thought maybe I got hired at LHSC first, so my other job was Stratford, but that really isn't the case. I think I spent uh, probably equitable time there. Um, in, in any sense, Stratford General Hospital was a smaller community hospital where often you were either uh, in an area that you were you know, forced to prioritize care because you're by yourself, or oftentimes you're the only RT in the entire hospital. So for that reason, being early in my career, I wanted to make sure that my skill set was um, as good as it could be for any of the procedures that I needed to do if, if and when I was that only RT in the hospital. So at LHSC, I jumped at an opportunity early on to put myself into the operating room. And I found that as a place where I could get those technical skills, some of those hands-on skills, things like intubations of adults, pediatrics. And the one that particularly was interesting to me were neonates because we were part of the high-risk delivery team at Stratford. And up until the point of me going into the operating room, I'd only intubated babies in simulation or on mannequins or task trainers. So I wanted that real world hands-on experience prior to having to do that in an emergency situation. So to answer your question, that's why I went into the OR. Um, what happened though was I, I quickly found myself really enjoying the role between technical and patient care. Um, there was a number of opportunities where it, uh, it allowed me to, to experience things that I, I hadn't seen before. I was learning constantly. Um, I enjoyed the role and it just kind of kept moving forward. Uh, I was lucky enough too to be in the OR when the first round, or I guess we can call them trailblazers or pioneers of the anesthesia world were coming through the, the profession. So when the first class was kind of coming out, um, starting to see what that role might look like. Um, and I right from the beginning thought this was a great progression for RTs. This is something that we can move you know, forward to and there's some uh, opportunities that can arise from this and I, I, I'm still in awe of some of what the AAs are doing uh, currently in other hospitals around the country. Um, so I took advantage. Um, I, I started a full-time career at the college here in 2013 which subsequently right before that I was about to apply to be a student in the AA program at Fanshawe College but I ultimately decided to focus my career on education which I, I think you know, I haven't looked back at all. I, I don't regret a second of that. But there was always that lingering question. What if? What if I took that AA program back then? Um, what would it look like? How would I feel? What was, you know, what, what cool things could have come from that? So an interesting opportunity came my way when I took a parental leave a few years back that uh, I said to my wife, I'm going back to school. <laughs> I had uh, an opportunity to enroll in the RT, or sorry, in the AA program here at Fanshawe College, and I jumped at it. Um, and I can tell you, I, again, never regretted a second of it. I enjoyed thoroughly the program. The clinical work was uh, so varied in patient population and specialty that it kept you thinking, it kept you progressing, it kept your skill set sharp. Um, and I really started to see how AAs make an impact on the care team from an anesthetic perspective, um, much more so than what I was experienced as an ORRT. 
um, I started to get really you know a strong foundation of the induction role, the maintenance, the monitor, intraoperative monitoring, the emergence, um, things like transporting and giving a report to nurses in the rec in the PACU, um, doing airway assessments and preoperative assessments on patients, and, and communicating all of my findings with the the team. Those are things that I just I loved it. I, I thought that was such a great way to use the you know the the resources of people and the expertise around the room. So. Um, I, I think this was an opportunity for me to do something that I had always questioned, uh, knew, to do something that I always thought I'd like, and it kind of came full circle for me. Um, ended me writing an exam. I was uh, ultimately successful on that CCAA exam, and uh, I'm more than happy and looking forward to what the future brings and how I can stay with the, within the profession. I mean, from what I'm getting from what you're saying is I need to have another child, uh, go on parental <laughs> leave, and uh, go back to school. Uh, I'm sure uh, we're going to have some episodes that are going to you know, dive a little bit more into the A-role and profession, and uh, have some focus, and hopefully through some of our episodes with that. I think that's a great idea. There's some great uh, individuals across the country that are doing some amazing things, so um, I would look forward to, to hearing that and being a part of that conversation as well. Like one last question to finish off. So tell us a little bit about your family life. Family life? I've got a beautiful wife. Uh, I've got three kids, two sons and a daughter, and uh, a big dog named Frankie. Um, pretty busy life. My boys play hockey and soccer and swimming. Uh, my two-year-old, we are just venturing past the potty training phase, so everywhere we go, we're running around with a potty and spare set of clothes, so life's busy right now, but uh, I wouldn't change a, a single thing about it. I love every second of my family life. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks, Dave. So that is probably more than you guys ever wanted to know about Dave and I, <laughs> and it's probably going to be the last personal thing we tell you on this podcast. The nice thing is moving forward is we're going to find other people and we're going to pick them apart and kind of interview them and you guys can maybe learn about some more people around us, more people in the profession kind of in the area and we'll have a lot of guests on our show. Cool. I like it. So we're going to start next episode off with uh, you naming that ventilator again? Yeah, definitely. I think that's kind of our go-to thing. Is that our hook? Yeah, I'm going to find a ventilator alarm that you've never heard before. I'm going to put something up. I'm going to try to trick you. Yeah. All right, guys, thanks for listening. Uh, Look forward to some feedback and some comments. If there's anything that you guys want to hear more of, please let us know. Uh, If there's something that you didn't like, uh, just tell that to Greg because I don't want to know the rest of that. I'm just kidding. (laughs) And uh, we will start planning episode two and uh, look forward to getting that out shortly. Take care, everyone. Have a good day and ventilate on. All right, thanks for listening, guys.